because you were watching all these European Cups and all these FA Cup matches, you were, as all kids are, drawn to the player. And I just wanted to ask you um, to start the second half of this discussion. Uh, compare Zico, Platini and Maradona. Oof. However you want. Answer the question okay. however you want. So, Zico was my, probably my first love as a player. Um, and that comes, obviously, from the 82 World Cup. He was my first... You know, as I mentioned in the book, you have your playground idols, you know, probably from the age of seven, eight, nine. Zico was the first player where you actually looked and thought, and you sort of almost, oh, I certainly almost started to see beyond, like I said, just beyond the aesthetics. You know, you'd look at some of the things he did in those games in 82, go out and try and copy them. And it wasn't just... I don't know, the free kick against Scotland or the scissor kick against New Zealand. It was, you know, almost the, the ability to receive the ball with your back foot and always be on the, the sort of half turn. He never, he was always, to me, he was always perpetual motion. He never actually stood still. Or never, I don't remember him ever standing still, ever. Everything was perpetual motion all the time. And so he was my very first love in terms of a player that stood out and, like, oh my God, that's, He's unbelievable. Uh, Maradona in 82 didn't really catch much attention. Obviously, there was a lot of noise about him, but didn't really do anything to, to certainly not to be to be better than, than, than what Zico was doing. 86, it, it's, for me, is, is the greatest tournament performance by any player you will, you will ever see, ever. Um, you know, it was... As, as time has gone on, I've just had a greater and greater and greater appreciation of what he could do as a footballer. Because the rules um, at the time, I'm not telling you anything new, but you could kick with impunity. Yeah. Oh, and this is what, and to be fair, um, Asif's documentary on, on Maradona, it, it brings that home brilliantly. If you've, you know, if you've not watched it, the, the playing conditions, the treatment that was given out, you know, and he played in, you know, the t- with Napoli, he played in the toughest league, um, that you could play in, and yet he was still brilliant, still above and beyond any you know, anybody could ever come to. And the levels he reached in '86 were just, you know, like I say, for me, are just by a single player are just are just phenomenal. They're just the greatest levels that the player could ever achieve on the you know on the biggest stage in the biggest moments. And it wasn't the odd moment and the odd goal. It was consistent from game one to the final, he was he was just omnipresent in every moment of every game. And then my, once my eyes drawn to a player, that's it. You know, they've, they've sort of got me for life sort of thing and I'll, I'll watch them, you know, I'll watch them for as long as they play, hoping that they can always reproduce the things that, that caught my eye. And, you know, and as time went by, as all players do, you know, things start to sort of dissipate and, you know, influences tend to wane. But, for, for me, he is funny because when I come to Platini, he, he, Maradona is the best player I've ever seen play the game by an absolute mile. Um, Platini, I did see play live, and he was he was incredible. His range of passing and his ability to pass, and he he made the game. You know, like I said, Zico was perpetual motion. Maradona was involved in everything and and sort of seemed to take responsibility for everything. Platini just just made it effortless, absolutely effortless. It looked like the easiest game in the world whenever he had the ball. It was almost like 
art watching him on the pitch. It was, you know, he was an incredible, when I watched him, he was just the most incredible player on the pitch. And I, I'd never seen anything like it live mm-hmm. before or since. And the fact that he could make a game look so easy and so effortless, as you get older, you tend to appreciate actually how difficult that really is. Yeah, because time <laughs> and space and the equipment. Yeah. yeah, I get that with Alman Abdi when he was at Watford for a few years. He, was, he had a horrible injury that kept him out, but the two seasons that he was fit, he was peerless, peerless. Yeah. And to, to come to Watford, of all places... Um, was worth the ticket price alone. Uh, we mentioned three number 10s in Zico, Platini and Maradona. What, what is it that is stopping Neymar from joining them in their ranks? I mean, Neymar is cherished as one of the best Brazilian 10s since Zico. And yet he seems part of the modern day Brazilian football. They're kind of like the Celesau Globetrotters. They play all their friendlies in different continents. They're sponsored by Nike. Um, it's and yet they do really well at World Cups. It's it's a funny one, Neymar, because you're right. Everything about him should absolutely appeal to me. I, you know, I should I should love him as a player. I'm, I I can quite easily go back into almost like childlike. It always devastates me now when I realise that the players that I love are older than me because that's never how it should be. They should always be older than me. Mm-hmm. But it's he is a, he's a player who, in theory, should appeal to all the things that I love about football and yet he doesn't and I can't I don't mean any product has in his ability to score goals or I just mean you know he's never done it when it when it really matters and I I suppose to a certain extent you know Zico doesn't win a World Cup but I mean Lionel Messi is a a phenomenal player phenomenal footballer Cristiano Ronaldo you know that's constant argument and discussion about who's the best and I, I don't care who, it's Iniesta but go ahead oh, well to be fair Xavi is the great to me Xavi is a player that I could watch all day he's, people who can make the game look so simple yet be so effective I love it um, but I can I can see the talent in Cristiano Ronaldo I can see how hard he works and I can see how he's made the very most of everything that he's got I can see Lionel Messi's natural ability and his ability to drag teams to victory or his ability to settle games. Obviously, he's never done it for Argentina. But Neymar, it's very difficult to explain because he just doesn't, he doesn't seem to have the, the end. It's what I call, if you like cricket, it's what I call a flat-track bully. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a batsman who's really, really good against sort of not very good bowlers on a, on a wicket that's easy to bat on, looks brilliant but the minute you put him up against genuine world-class opposition I'm not sure he's quite the same player and I'm sure there's PSG fans and Brazil fans who, who will completely disagree and that, that's fine that's why we love football but I think they're called Neymar me. fans I don't think yeah. that you don't <laughs> yeah, you're not right. you don't support PSG you support Neymar yeah and, and it, to me there are far better players or to, there are far better players that I would rather watch I think there's far more effective footballers He's certainly up there with Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of natural talent. I think he's got all the gifts in the world. I just don't think his mentality is right and what that is. And I don't know the guy, but he just doesn't seem to have... You, know, you can see the drive in Cristiano Ronaldo, that, that innate desire to, to be the very best he can. You know, Lionel Messi understands his role, understands his responsibilities and will deliver time and time and time again. 
Neymar, I think, knows he's a very good footballer. I just don't think he knows what to do after that. Yeah, maybe uh, Ronaldo got the good from Alex Ferguson and someone like Ravel Morrison didn't. The more I think about your writing, Stu Horsfield, the more I think you actually support the ref. There's a really good piece <laughs> on Pierluigi Colina, um, who refereed England-Argentina in 2002. I completely forgot about that. Would you consider, if, you, if you're a football coaching tutor, um, coaching you need to know patterns of play and everything else, but you also need to know how to bend the laws of the game. Uh, not bend, the, you need to appreciate the laws of the game and then the football comes within them. Um, would you not suggest um, that refereeing was a good thing to do if you're released as a pro at 16 or after YTS? Yes, I think... I absolutely would. I think refereeing and coaching are a second and third opportunity to still go as far as you want in the professional game. I think certainly now with the professionalism of referees, I, I, lo- I love the game. I absolutely love the game. And I would want to be involved in the game in any way that I possibly can. Writing a foundation degree, you don't go writing one of those just because <laughs> you write it because you want to do Nothing something else to do. Yeah. Yeah, you want to do something in your job that you really love. And I thought, well, I'd love to teach on a football coaching degree, so I'll, I'll write one. But, you know, if you love the game, refereeing can take you to the very best stadiums, to be involved with the very best players, you know, the highest, highest level. And it's a second opportunity. And especially because you need to start it so young. You know, you can't have that epiphany sort of in your mid to late 30s. It has to come... Like you say, when you, you know when you've been released as a as a as a junior at sixteen or eighteen, you know that's the ideal time. I think the FA are, I would like to think, are better at protecting young referees um, in terms of exposing them to some of the horrific stuff you see and hear about at grassroots football. And I think any youngster who is prepared to undertake refereeing qualifications and try and pursue a career in refereeing need to be nurtured and protected and, you know, developed in an environment where they can be good referees, be competent referees without the fear of what's going to happen. And, you know, like, you know, we mentioned before that players at 16 fall out of love with the game. You know, I'm sure you could have a very talented referee who by the time they get to 19 think it's just not worth it. The abuse, the grief, it's not worth it. And you could probably potentially lose really, really good referees and referee assistants when, if you just maybe looked after them a little bit better, um, you know, they could go on and, and have really, really good careers. I think you're right. I think it's a really, really good career opportunity. If you love the game as much as you say you do, you don't care how you're involved. Or to me, you don't care how you're it's involved. It's the ultimate vicarious thrill, refereeing. It's, yeah. not, it's not collecting stickers or playing Pro Evo. Refereeing <laughs> is the closest you can get to actually playing the game. I remember I had a, at Cottingham School, I had my PE teacher was called Mr. Grandage. Um, and he was a football league linesman at the time, but oh, wow. obviously in the days before professionalism, because he, he was our PE teacher. Yeah, yeah. And he he was the fourth official at an England international. And, you know, and he came back the next, sort of the next day, and he was like, oh, I was stood in the tunnel next to Gary Lineker. I can't remember who they were playing, but he, he sort of told us these stories, and you think, well, yeah, you could... You know, that's where you can go. That's where it can take you, that you're at Wembley, stood next to Gary Lineker, walking out, you know, with the, with the players. And, you know, and, and that opportunity existed even back then. And that was before it was, you know, a paid profession. Yeah, which it um, is now. Yeah. Which it is now, yeah. What are your favourite Samba songs? 
<laughs> or artists? Um, it, it, it's funny. Um, it's not the sort of thing. I, it's not the sort of thing that I would listen to, and yet I didn't realise at the time before I started writing the book that the um, Vora Camarillo song was, was by Junior. I remember the. I remember the music because the minute you play it, you go straight back to 1982, and it's obviously. It's stuff that you don't notice at the time as a kid, but then when I re-watch the games, and that that song and that soundtrack plays a lot during the games in the crowd. I remember the the, the drum beat and the samba sound in the crowds as a kid. And I, I remember it. You know, I couldn't name a tune that they were playing or you know anything remotely like that. And it was a, a guy who'd got in touch with me from Brazil who found out that I was writing the book. He was like, oh, you know, don't forget this and don't forget that. And, you know, don't forget, you know, Junior released that record. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is the left back. He um, recorded and released Voa Canaria. And I was like, I'm really sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. And he sent me a link. And the minute I played it from YouTube, I was like, oh, my God, that's the no- that's the soundtrack, that's the noise, that's, that's from the game. And it, it takes you straight back. And so now it's on my Spotify playlist. And it's just, <laughs> I've just decided to bed it, so it's underneath here. So we get that yeah. sensation that it, 10-year-old Stu Horsfield is back yeah. in Scarborough watching... That's it. On the beach, on the beach, watching some football de Salau. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was cold. <laughs> there wasn't many warm days on the on the beaches in Scarborough. Still is. But yeah, so that's that's on my that's on my Spotify playlist now. Whenever it comes on, like you say, you're back there. 1982, Scarborough, summer, right there. Uh, this is uh, World Cup 1982. Was it helpful that it was in Spain rather than Australia or Japan or Mexico? <laughs> Massively, it, it fitted perfectly with school, with bedtimes, you know, that, that hazy summer, sort of hot Spanish evenings. It, it, people say, I've even written an article about it, about why, you, you know, the first World Cup is usually your favourite. It doesn't matter which one it is. Correct. People will always point to, well, actually, I think the 94 one is, well, I think it's 98, well, I think it's 70. And, you know, if it's not your favourite, you think, well, no, it's not. How on earth can that be? Surely it's 1982 because that one's mine. But it's if, if 78 was my first World Cup, obviously the, the sort of the strange kick-off times, it always, to me it always seems to be a bit rainy and a bit cloudy and it doesn't seem to have the magic, whereas Spain just... It had everything. It, you know, the kickoff. Like I said the kickoff times were perfect. You'd, you'd come home from school and be able to watch live football, and then you could watch another one after your tea. And it was always hot and sunny, and it, you know, it was under floodlights. You know, Mexico seventy is brilliant. Mexico eighty six is brilliant, but none of the games are played under floodlights. There's no evening games in those two World Cups, and and you sort of lose that that magic of games that's played under the lights, whereas. 82 has has both elements. It has the night games, but yet it has the really warm summer afternoon games. It it just had, to me, it just had everything. It was just the perfect storm for a for a ten year old who who loved football. And of course, in 1982, two live games in a day only happened once every two or four years because there was a couple of years before the big blackout. Football was descending into hooliganism, but did it seem more pure watching the World Cup than watching oh, uh, the big match or match of the day? Absolutely. You know, even you know the pitches were were perfect. The the ball that was used, you know, the Adidas Tango. It's such a beautiful, iconic football. 
everybody seemed to be young and fit and athletic. You know, there wasn't the sort of, it sounds awful, doesn't it? The sort of balding quagmires. You know, a lot of professional football at, at those times on the television looked a lot like non-league football visually, not necessarily the, obviously the level of ability and the players, but certainly the visuals. It's hard to distinguish from an old first division match and a match sort of down in the park until you get to see the stands in the background. But the sort of the vista that, that comes across from Spain was just one that was, you know, like a different world. I guess people who watched the World Cup in Mexico in 1970, you know, the first one in colour, I imagine it was a lot like how people like that felt. Probably, I can probably appreciate if, you know, if 1970 was somebody's first World Cup, I can kind of get why that might be something truly stunning and quite the experience. But like I say, they didn't have night games, which will always be a, a negative point against 1970. But in Spain, it just visually, it was it was like football from a different world. It just wasn't what you were used to seeing. Even, like I say, going back to what you're saying about the music, you know, in the stands, it was all very English chanting and, you know, it, it was very perfunctory, whereas... You know the different when you have different nations with fans from the different cultures bringing different, I guess, a, a different vibe into the stadium. It was it, it was just incredible. It, it was just incredible. No matter who you watched, every game was just was just brilliant. It was just an every game was an adventure. Uh, England were there handily. It was their first World Cup for twelve years. Yeah. Um, do you remember getting particularly enthused um, by oh. that England? It was Ron Greenwood, wasn't it? I remember watching a, a qualifying. In fact, somebody put a goal, a goal up the other day on YouTube, and it, the the sort of the away fixture in Hungary where Trevor Brooking has the shot that sticks in the stanchion, yep. literally sticks in the stanchion. The keeper has to reach it, and then to qualify again, you don't realise as a kid, but actually they make a really poor job of qualifying. But then results happen to go their way, and they win again. I think it's the final game against Hungary at Wembley, and Paul Mariner sort of stumbles stumbles over the ball to score and they win 1-0 and you know and then they go and qualify but it's actually a really really good England side that go and and up until that point I was all set for yeah England will win the World Cup it's going to be great I'm an England fan can't wait and then uh, then obviously the Brazilians play on day two and uh, it's, <laughs> that's it then it's my, my attention is just completely drawn and distracted and I think the funny thing about England is obviously they beat France 3-1 and, and that French side in that World Cup is a, you know, is a really well remembered, brilliant side. You know, talked about Platini already, and they won. You know, and they have that, they have that wonderful game against West Germany in the semi-finals. But actually, England beat them three-one, and it, it kind of gets forgotten about, and you know, sort of in the midst of time. But it, it was a really, really good England side that unfortunately gradually got worse and worse as the tournament went on. In fact, they were the complete opposite of Italy, really. Hmm. I can't remember who won the 82 World Cup. I thought it was France. It wasn't, was no, it? No, Italy, Italy, yeah, Italy went oh, of on course, and won it. Of course, yes, of course. West Germany. Yeah, yes, and the yeah. Tony Schumacher incident. That's right, yeah, it, in the with semi-final. The semifinal. Yeah, this is all told in your book, 1982 Brazil, The Glorious Failure. When you were talking to the chaps from these football times, you mentioned that Tele Santana got a standing ovation from the journalists after the, well, the second group game against Italy. What did Brian Glanville say? Because he was one of them. It's, it's funny because I actually managed to speak to Patrick Barclay. Yep. Um, and he was, 
it, he was funny. He was great. He was a great guy to interview because I asked him what it, you know what it was. You know, I sort of explained what it was like as a ten year old. You know, and obviously he was a sort of a hard bitten journalist who was there to report what you see and nothing else and be objective. And you know, and he was like, he said, he said it was honestly. He said, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, but it was it was like a, a death. Uh, when that final whistle, when Brazil went out, the entire press box, all nations, all the press, all the different countries, it was one of absolute devastation and regret and disbelief. He said, then you have to start to put your story together. I said, but we went down to the press room after the game. He said, and it was just a spontaneous, everyone just stood up and, and applauded because people just didn't know what, you know, he said the press didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say to begin with, how to handle it. There was an appreciation for what Brazil had brought and there was this devastation that they were out. Almost, you know, it wasn't something that was rehearsed and had been discussed, you know, before he came in. It was just this almost spontaneous, well, we need to sort of show, so, you know, we need yeah. to demonstrate somehow, some way, an appreciation of what this team had brought and what how they've made us feel. And that was... That was it, and that, that was just how it manifested itself. And also, a lot better than just saying, uh, so, Telly, um, Brian Glamour here at the Times, you must be very disappointed with that result, <laughs> given that Paolo Rossi was supposed to be suspended because of his involvement in that nonsense, and then suddenly he scores a hat-trick in the biggest game of his life. And um, what do you think of that? Um, yeah, this is, you, you know that Telly um, has had put Brazil back on a global standing, that Brazil was changing in the early 80s. You go into this um, as 40-something-year-old Stu, not 10-year-old Stu, in your yeah. book. Where was Pele in 1982? Was he bankrupt? Pele, Pele was... It's funny because, obviously, he's very sort of omnipresent in, in Brazilian football. And 74, which is the first World Cup without him since 1950, you know, you had almost sort of 20, the best part of 24 years of Pele a World Cup, you know, he, uh, sorry, not from that, 54, yeah, 54, sorry, not 50. Yeah. yeah, so 58, he makes his debut, 70, he wins it for the third and final time. And so all of a sudden, you have this massive gap, and 74 is so poor and so bad and so un-Brazilian-like that he almost starts to disassociate himself with the national team and it, in that guise and in that, in the way it's in the way it's going, and like it's almost a, a removal. Yeah, it's like a removal of that's not my Brazil. That's not what I'm associated with. That's not what I'll put my name to. Seventy-eight, it's marginally better, you know, and he's there and he's sort of on on the periphery. But I th- what I think eighty-two does is I'm not I'm not saying that eighty-two wipes away the memory of seventy because of course it doesn't. You know, they are. I, even I can appreciate that the 1970 Brazil side are probably the greatest side to ever play in the World Cup, and they go and win it, which is obviously the ultimate test of whether they're a good side or not. But I think what what 82 does is it actually gives Brazilian football, Brazilian fans, an opportunity to let go of 1970 and let go of the the long shadow that's cast by Pele and Tostal and Jairzinho and um, you know those, those great names from 1970. All of a sudden, Brazilian fans actually have a new sort of a, a new team to fall in love with, a new a new set of players and characters 
to sort of get behind, but it, obviously it never really develops from there. So I think I, I think Pele has already withdrawn a little bit from what where the direction of Brazilian football is going in. But then once this, I suppose, Pele and Brazilian-like side reappear, what it actually does is, is give Brazilian football an opportunity to sort of breathe again, free from the comparisons of Pele, and gives Brazilian fans the opportunity to fall in love with a contemporary side that is theirs rather than going back to the a generation before in, in 1970. And I mentioned Pelé because we're speaking hours before the Netflix documentary is added <sighs> to Netflix. This goes out on yeah. the 12th of March, so we'll already have heard a lot about Pelé. Johnny Lou's written a piece, Henry Winter has written a piece. Um, it's a great chance to see the the best of Pelé. I'm sure that there'll be like these 17-year-olds going, wow, Pelé's really good. And then just go back to watching Mbappe destroy Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you excited about Pelé's documentary? Are you going to watch it tomorrow before even you tutorials tomorrow? I, uh, I, absolutely, I, I love, I'm an absolute sucker for a football documentary. I'll, I'm always banging on at my students to watch them. Have you watched this? Have you watched that? You need to download this. You know, you're all the Netflix generation. At least make use of it and learn about something other than contemporary football. Um, yeah, I can't wait. I, I think Pele is, is clearly an incredibly talented footballer. I don't think I've... I would hold my hand and say I don't think I have an honest appreciation of actually how good he is. Obviously, having never played in Europe, that's nothing to do with him or his fault. That's just... That was the nature of the game at the time. I think there's obviously this discussion about the inflated or not inflated number of goals that he scored in his career tends to, unfairly, but certainly tends to put a, a sort of an asterisk next next to his, his greatness in that, you know, were he really, you know, did he play at the highest level? Yes, he plays at the highest level in terms of um, World Cups, but in terms of club football and goals he scored, you know, people look at Cristiano Ronaldo's um, goal-scoring record and you can quite accurately track the career arc of Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi and where their goals are scored. A lot of Pele's goals claimed, you know, some claim they're in friendlies or whatever it, whatever that is, but ultimately he's a three-time World Cup winner and that will always stand the test of time no matter what discussion you're trying to have about who's the greatest player that's ever played a, a three-time World Cup winner has to be a, a phenomenal a phenomenal footballer you know, like you said a player who wins it at 17 you can't argue with that I just don't think I think he suffers from a lack of visual representation yep, of him absolutely. at his prime I spoke, I spoke to Tim Vickery in the book and you know he always claimed that the 62 version of Pele, although he only plays twice in that World Cup, is the very best of Pele. You know, at that period in his career, that tournament, those first couple of games, you know, he said that's that was peak that, Pele. That maps on to Fenomeno Ronaldo, as we must call him, because I was talking, I think I was talking to Mr. Scrag about original Ronaldo, and Troy Delia <laughs> said that original Ronaldo was also one of his favourites. So I think, yeah, Mbappe, you're seeing now, he's barely 21. That seemed, and Michael Owen, this, a similar age, just, um, or Foden at the moment. Um, the novelty is worn off, but you can see that there's going to be a player who will step up, Sterling, Rashford. That's the most yeah. exciting stage of a footballer's career, early 20s. Uh, I know that a lot of players were a bit older in the Brazil side. Let's run through the 11 very quickly. The goalkeeper, Perez, 
um, only oh, you only kept one clean sheet. Yeah, uh, it, it comes it comes in for a lot of stick, and rightly so. I think he gets more than he probably is. I mean, you know, it's great to sit here and sort of pontificate about people's opinions. That's not it. What I do know is I've watched all five of their games multiple, multiple times. Um, and obviously the, the horrific error against the Soviet Union, the, I would argue, the soft second goal that Paolo Rossi scores. David Neri's goal is sensational and no goalkeeper would have kept it out. That's fine. That's the um, Scotland goal. Yeah, and I think... Paolo Ross's first goal, Paolo Ross's third goal, he has no answer to. I think he makes, I'm making the book, he makes two brilliant saves against Argentina at 0 0 and 1 0 that get completely forgotten about because the error against the Soviet Union is so bad and so poor. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, I think he's the second highest appearance maker for his club. He was in the World Cup squad in 74, 78, 82. And again, you don't. You don't make World Cup squads, certainly not Brazilian World Cup squads. Well, if you're, a, you're an average, go- well, maybe an average goalkeeper. Goalkeeper's a difficult position in Brazil because of the Barbarossa situation in 1950. Barbosa, yeah. Barbarossa, Barbosa, yeah. Barbosa, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's you're right. It's it, it's, uh, it's it's one of those things like West Indies. Nobody wants to be a spin bowler in the West Indies. Yeah. They don't want to be fast bowlers. I don't think any Brazilian footballers want to be a goalkeeper. Yeah. But he's you know, he is, he makes a horrific error and then from there, you know, the, the opinion about him is, is set in stone. And again, I suppose a lot of it comes from not having seen these players like we do now. You know, he could have been absolutely world-class for his club and we'd never know because you don't see it. I've got a personal uh, view on that. We had Jorelio Gomez at Watford um, <laughs> and he was one clanger for every 10 games. And of course, Hugo Lloris, the clanger of all clangers in the World Cup final more or less the last thing in that tournament. The back four, Leandro, Oscar, Luizinho and Junior. Um, who's your favourite? Uh, it's funny because it, Junior's one of those players, you know, I remember him scoring, I remember the little dance against Argentina, but I didn't, I didn't actually appreciate until going back how good a footballer he actually was. I mean, he was never a left-back. He was always a left midfielder or central midfielder. He was never a left-back. But he plays left back in this tournament. He was outstanding as a footballer. Not great defensively, but as a footballer, he was wonderful. You know, he was up talent wise, skill, technical ability. He was right up there with that midfield of Zico and Socrates and Falcao and Adair. In terms of levels of ability, he could have played in that midfield. Well, really, he did, to be fair. But he could have played in that midfield, no problem at all. Uh, a fantastic footballer Leandro um, youngest player only 19 at the time what people look for in fullbacks now overlapping constantly getting forward constantly an outlet you know sets up two goals against New Zealand you know he's, he's very of the Trent Alexander Trent Alexander Arnold sort of mould you know people would have paid a fortune for for um, Leandro, it's just that that's not what was expected of right backs in in 1982, but it is in 2021. I think you wrote this in. Uh, there's a piece uh, that was written in the middle of 2018 on these football times, which led to the book 1982 Brazil: The Glorious Failure. Which is that now? Is it 1699? Uh, I think it's 1295 at the moment. It's Ooh. 
Yeah, it's on sale. It's on sale in Amazon. Or they put it on sale, should I say. So there's no excuse not to get it. Uh, no, but you wrote that really. Serizo, the playmaker, who was playing at four, had two pairs of lungs, or it was said that he yeah. played like he had two pairs of lungs. So if you could give a modern equivalent of Serizo and then next to him Falcao, Big Falc. Um, I think Serizo to me was like Patrick Vieira without the goals is probably the best way I could describe him. Very dominant, very athletic, very competent with the ball at his feet, but didn't mind doing the hard yards um, that was needed. But then when he needed to play, he could play. Um, he didn't really have goals in his armory like Vieira, and he probably wasn't in terms of stature, in terms of height, but in terms of physicality and ability to cover to cover ground, very much like Vieira. Um, a lot like N'Golo Kante as well, I suppose. Falcao, she talked about Phil Foden, actually. Falcao was 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 a player who who had everything without being spectacular, but yet when he wasn't there, you, you notice him. And I think if you look at players, I suppose you know if you look at the Manchester City side now, and I guess David Silva's now gone, but luckily they have Phil Foden. Falcao played that that sort of role that linked everything together. Um, he played in Europe. He was at Roma, so he had the European experience. You know, he he added that to his game that the other the other Brazilian players in that starting eleven didn't have, um, and was very very good at Rome. Very you know very good footballer, well thought of in Serie A, and like like Phil Foden again, you know he could pass, he could link play, he could score goals, he could get forward, he could defend the all round. You know, Cerezo and Falcao. You know, people think of this Brazilian side as being very forward-thinking and gung-ho and we're all going forward and leaving nothing behind. But actually, those two were very aware of the roles and what was expected of them. But they were just that fit and that mobile that they could get up and down um, in order to do those, in order to play those positions. Um, Complemented each other very, very well, really. As uh, central midfield duos, like like Zabi yeah. and Yester and Bushquets, yeah, very much. And and I mean, Falcao probably wouldn't have started if Cerezo was suspended for the first game. There's a hangover from the qualifiers, so they would have gone with Deseo wide right, um, and then they would have gone with Cerezo, um, Socrates, Adair wide left, and then Serginho and Zico probably Zico playing in that number ten role just off him, but. Um, because Cerezo's injured, Falcao comes in, and, and bizarrely, Tele Santana goes with Deseo at, at the beginning, um, and it's Paolo Isidoro, sorry, who, who you would have thought would have played right back, but he starts with Deseo instead, and it doesn't work, and Falcao plays really, really well, and then once Cerezo's back after his suspension, doesn't want to drop Falcao because of how well he plays, so just plays them both, which is not a way that they'd ever played as a as a Stein eleven, you know, like I think I mentioned in the book that that Stein eleven that you that you go through, they only play together for four games in that entire World Cup, and then I think they're on the pitch for twenty minutes against the Republic of Ireland as that midfield five, and that's it. And that's the only time those five ever played Blink. together ever. Blinking, you'll miss um, Yeah, but yet it just kind of. I say it fell into his lap. It fell into Santana's lap through 
fortune of suspensions and trial and error. Ultimately, it doesn't work because they lose to Italy. But, you know, people talk about how great that midfield were. But that's it. They only ever played together four times in the World Cup and 20 minutes against the Republic of Ireland. And that's it. You never see them play again in, as, a, as a midfield five. I will give Gary Thacker another plug. Do you think he needs us to say that Beautiful Bridesmaids comes out in June? It's a book about Dutch football and uh, the team that didn't win the World Cup, but won the hearts and minds of the world, thanks to Johan Cruyff and company. Um, a, a couple of quotations here that you've written. Irreverent swagger, a kaleidoscope of movement, you call them purists. There's a purity to their play. This could describe any number of teams. Why do you place Brazil 82 above everyone else? Is it just the fact that you were 10 and they wore yellow shirts? I, a lot, I, I will hold my hand up, but a lot of it has to do with, with me being 10. That's fine. That's fine. Um, a, a, lo, a lot of it has to do with scoring overhead kicks chipping the ball in the goal against Alan Ruff from in from right on the edge of the 18-yard box. The the dummy from Falcao for Adair who sets himself up with a volley on the run and sco- scores Socrates. It, it, the Dutch side are great, and Gary and I, I won't say we fall out about this, but I would say we probably discuss this at least once a week. <laughs> and if you get to chat to it, I'm sure I'll say the same thing. This discussion about who were the better side, and, and obviously we have our our own personal choices. The, the Dutch were great, and I can see why Gary loves the Dutch, and I, and I get, I can see, because I don't support a team, I'm, I'm never blinkered enough to not appreciate the talent, the quality, and the beauty in other sides. I get it. But to me, the, the Brazilians, it was just, it was so instinctive and so easy on the eye and so beautiful to watch. I think you know, the Dutch are, you know, the Dutch are great and Gary loves it and we'll talk exactly the same way I do about the Brazilians. But it it just didn't seem the Dutch it doesn't seem as effortless as the Brazilians seem to make it look. It wasn't done with a smile, it wasn't done with a swagger, if you want to be like the kids these days. It wasn't <laughs> done with the most absurd and outrageous skill across you know, at all levels. I mean, there's a great quote. I think it's in um, Andrew's book about Socrates, who, who I think, you know, they talk about him passing the ball with his heel more than he does with his instep. And it, and it, and it is that. It's it's almost uh, just because you can. A sort of attitude that, you know, a simple pass that, you know, that he can make a side foot pass, but he actually decides to make it as a back heel. As a 10-year-old, that, that's all you want to see. As a 40-something-year-old, you would think, well, that's a bit risky. and Why would you do that? But, as a ten-year-old, you just you can't get enough of it, and that was it. You just I just couldn't get enough of watching them play. And it's all um, I imagine a lot of it is on YouTube now. You said you had to order videos with English commentary. Mm. Yeah, for the full games, yeah. Right. I think the Brazil-Italy games on there. The full the full ninety minutes is on YouTube, but the other games, it's all highlights of which there is a lot. But there's yeah, it's all highlights. But obviously. To be able to tell the story properly, you have to because it's all the nuances and the little, the little incidentals that make up the story. Like about Perez's performance and Zaginho's performance, and you know how good defensively they were against Argentina when quite often they're criticised for not being able to defend. You know, and all of these things. And again, like I say about Junior, 
I didn't appreciate what a what a talented footballer he was until I started watching the games again. You know, the full 90 minutes is when you actually really appreciate how technically good he was. I do feel that every time you mention Junior, there should be a sting of some of that. What is it, Val? <laughs> Val Camarillo. Camarillo. Uh, it will it will go onto my playlists as well. <laughs> then, of course, there was an epitaph or an epilogue to this tale. 1994, Roberto Baggio missed a penalty in what I hear was a horrific final. Did you watch the 94 FA Cup fi- uh, World Cup final? You may have been in Tenerife at the time. It's funny, the way I was actually backpacking and recorded it and came home and watched it. I actually watched it on on, the, on a video and it was horrific. But for me, well, I'll say, actually, no, it's not. The 1990 World Cup final is the worst World Cup final I think I've ever seen. The, um, the finals are never any good. No, we, we had a discussion about this the other day, actually. On the, Gary and Steve and I were chatting about this, about how often it's the semi-finals or sometimes yeah. replays or what it is that actually end up being the best games. Finals very rarely you achieve are- the height. You're talking to a, a Watford fan who didn't go to the FA Cup final a few years ago because we could have been beaten 28-0. We, still, oh, we wouldn't have had a chance yeah. because the semi-final was so incredible. Uh, I, I watched the match on telly, turned it off, listened to the radio. It was a waste of time. But just getting there was the thrill. And then we sacked the manager six months later. Can I invite you to support Watford? We are a, we're a good team. Very, we've got a British I mean, spine now. I, I will watch any team that will entertain me oh well then no no we're not entertaining we're functional (laughs) very functional at the moment although we've seen as we speak um we've had a good run of three wins can you explain finally your twitter handle which is where you can see this picture of zico holding your book 1982 brazil the glorious failure Uh, my twitter handle is at loxley misty 44 which is l-o-x-l-e-y M-I-S-T-Y and it's just a combination of children's names and a door number <laughs> it's, it's, oh. it was something that when, when I first set up on Twitter it was never I wasn't a writer I was it, nothing it you was were just something yeah it was just something that oh, I'll remember that that's great and so now you have to sort of explain explain why that's your Twitter Perfect handle sense. Perfect sense. I've thought about changing it, but I I couldn't change it now. No, I I can think of two people that would disagree with that. And have the kids (laughs) read the book or or read extracts of it? To be fair, yeah, they have. um, Bless them, they've they've shown they've shown a lot of of genuine interest in a subject that I don't think interests them at all. But yeah, they they have. To be fair, I remember my Misty was my youngest daughter. She she read through the entire introduction for me. Uh, mainly because it was about me as a kid. I think that's what they were actually interested in. I don't think they were interested in the football at any point. But I think they just wanted to read about me as a child and what it was like. Yeah, they have, like I say, they've shown interest in something that doesn't interest them at all. Oh, and I, I would love to talk about the Qatar World Cup, but we've run out of time because Qatar, what a pointless enterprise. I've been saying Brazil oh. are going to win that tournament, but it's going to be a horrific tournament. If it indeed it does take place at the end of 2022, everything is up in the air. No one's even oh. thinking about the World Cup, but we have a, a super fun Euro tournament this oh. summer. Game after game after game after game. It feels like it's going to be the best part of two months. I mean, I can't keep track of... There seems to be a Premier League game on every day. There is in the next few weeks, yeah. Yeah, I've never known anything like it. And then, like you say, it's just going to run straight into the European Championships, which will run straight into the following season, which then runs straight into a a bizarre World Cup that's in December. It's... 
it's a strange, strange, I mean, they are strange times. We are living in strange times. Um, and that just sort of accentuates how strange it actually is. <laughs> and the, my other favourite photo of yours on Twitter is your bookcase. I, I gave you a hint by saying you should do it by Dewey Decimal System. You seem to have done it by country or by spine colour. I went with, in the end, it's funny because my youngest daughter helped me with that as well. Um, I went with, I went with English clubs, first of all, anything that was to do with English clubs. Then I went into um, England as a national team. Then I went to Europe by country. Then I went to the world and then finally arrived at FIFA tournaments and then miscellaneous, which is where Michael Calvin sits at the moment. <laughs> he sits in he sits in miscellaneous. No, I think uh, some people like him, he and Glanville and Jonathan Wilson should just have their own no. section in the way that Shakespeare has his own section. Yeah, Michael Calvin does have his own section. Jonathan Wilson, unfortunately, got, got caught up in Argentina and Barcelona and Hungary. He's yeah. all over the place. He's got his fingers in many bits of shelf. He has. He's Lock- all over that bookshelf. Loxley Misty 44 is where you can read regular Twitter missives from Stuart Horsfield. Do you have uh, these Football Times piece going live in the next few weeks that we can read? Or is it all tutoring at no, the moment? Just, it's, not, it's all tutoring at the moment. There's regular podcasts two and three a week at the moment. Um, and then obviously we've got our latest magazine. That, but I can't tell you who it is. I don't think we've not released who it is. Well, yet. it, it won't be Brazil, Maradona, Holland, Mexico, 70. What else? England? What else have you done? Uh, it won't be, yeah, it won't be Liverpool, Roma, Celtic. I need to make sure I don't say this club. Leeds. Madrid, uh, Barcelona. Oh, it's a club, a. Eh? Mm. It's a club, yeah. It's a, we're carrying on with the club theme. Okay. And, it, and to be fair, we did a really, really... Again, Stephen, I'm really lucky. We had a great interview last week um, with someone from the club. It was it was a brilliant, brilliant chat. But I think it's beginning of March, so it should be beginning of next oh. week it'll be released. So it will be out now. All the magazines will be available in the football library because they are physical as well as um, digital. They are. The physical ones are incredible. They sell out. I don't know how many physical ones there are left to buy of any of the back copies. Hmm. I know some of them have been on eBay for ridiculous prices, but there are digital copies of a lot of them. Um, But, yeah, the the physical copies go really, really quickly, really quickly. I'm still missing one, and I'm part of the senior leadership team. <laughs> I'm, still missing, I'm still missing the very first magazine, which, yeah. Too which popular. Is, it's too popular. Yeah. Thesefootballtimes.co and on Twitter at... Oh, it's, is it just These Football Times? Yeah, it's just at, the, at These Footy Times. These Footy uh, Times, correct. Yeah. Send my regards to Omar. I haven't... But I did pitch him something last year and he quite rightly rejected it. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll try and pitch something. Whom do, do I pitch to you or do I pitch to Gary? Uh, no, Who do I pitch to? If you, the, the bet is Will, uh, Will Sharp or Omar are the two, the two guys to pitch to. All right. Um, they're, they're usually, they're both the editor and sub-editor. They usually decide what goes, what goes on the site um, in terms of the online in terms of the online stuff. And yes, there's recently been a series on Brothers in Arms. Stephen Scragg wrote a very good piece on the Loud Drops. Uh, I'm sure Brian's written some good pieces as well, just for completeness. Um, Yeah, I... It's it's a really, really good series. I was in the... Can't what I was in the middle of. Something to do with work. Um, And I was really frustrated because I wanted to write about um, the Neville brothers 
Um, but A, I was late off the mark in picking someone. Um, and then it got to the stage where it was, I think it's James Kelly who put it together. Um, and there's nothing worse when you're trying to curate a series and then a piece doesn't turn up and you have to ask someone else. I was like, I was like I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to sort of miss this one. But yeah, as a series, it's it's been brilliant. Some really, really good stuff in it. And it is a credit to the memory of Jim Hart, who is the co-founder yeah. of these football times for which Stu Horsfield writes. I will let you get back to um, maybe saying hello to your children uh, because you've given me an hour and a half. I'm off to watch the Prime Minister bumble his way through this announcement uh, and see what Mr Starmer yeah. has to say. But um, I hope that there are more playmakers for you to follow and I wish you every success uh, with the continued success of this book. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful, wonderful um, hour and a half chat. I am very grateful for the opportunity. Bless you. And more of Stu's voice at the These Football Times podcast series. Just like the library! Just like the library!